I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, This Mythic Life. Like all of my work, this podcast is drawn from ancient but still bubbling wellsprings, from the old, forgotten pre-Christian mythologies and philosophies of the West. These traditions, from the magical stories of Celtic Ireland to the soul-centered myth-tellings of Plato in ancient Greece, are rich, complex, and beautiful. They offer up a world in which everything is not only alive, but has purpose and intentionality of its own. I believe that it's time to reclaim those old indigenous ways of being in the world and bring them back out into the world where they belong. So founded in authentic scholarship, as well as committed embodied practice in the mythopoetic and creative arts, my work on the mythic imagination is above all about finding our way back into the mystic, about delving into the mysteries of wild psyche and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. In this podcast, I offer you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. And if you enjoy it, you might also enjoy my monthly membership program, which is also called This Mythic Life, and which includes a weekly subscriber-only podcast in which I focus in on a favorite myth or fairy tale and discuss the ways in which its themes and archetypes cast light on the issues we face in our lives in these challenging times. You'll find details at www.sharonblackie.net forward slash membership. So welcome to another episode of This Mythic Life. And I am here today with Dr. Gwilym Morris-Bed, who is joining me from mid-North Wales. Good afternoon, Gwilym. How is it with you? Good afternoon. Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And one of the reasons it is a pleasure is that uh, Gwilym has an academic background in the Welsh bardic tradition specifically. And um, he has a, a master's degree and a PhD from the School of Welsh at Bangor University. And he's been working on medieval Welsh poetry in the Welsh bardic tradition for a number of years now. So that is what we are going to talk about in today's podcast. But before we get to that subject, Gwilym, you're also a musician of sorts. I understand. I am indeed. I'm actually probably more of a musician than I am anything else. I'm kind of an accidental academic, if you like. As most Welsh language musicians have experienced, there isn't much money in singing in Welsh, although we do get a lot of attention in Wales itself, of course. So I needed something else to do. uh, And I thought being a student was a, a decent accompanying string in my bow, if you like. So yes, I ended up spending a lot of time in university, but ultimately I'm still a musician and quickly becoming a storyteller as well, funnily enough. Um, So music and storytelling is still very, very much what I like to do. And then I have this other deep interest in in Celtic mythology and the Welsh Bardic tradition. So I teach courses on that too, uh, whenever I get the chance. So too many loves in my life at the minute. Yeah, I know the feeling, but I'm particularly excited to talk to you about the Welsh tradition because I've observed through watching you on Facebook and uh, looking at your website that you have, as I do, I think, and most of the people that are listening to this podcast will be very much aware of it, a real sense of the importance of some kind of rigour when we talk about Celtic mythology, whichever country it comes from, precisely because there is so much nonsense out there, so much misinformation 
information, if you like, on the web and in books too, that there, you know, there's so much uh, poor interpretation of the actual sources. So, so few people feel it necessary to go back to the actual sources and study them properly. So it's really loved, lovely to talk to you from that perspective. Absolutely. I mean, and that's, I mean, it's the main reason why I started the course Celtic Source, because I think we do need to present better materials to English speaking audiences um, and communicating to that audience well researched, simply presented materials about the history of the Celtic nations. And, you know, I generally try and do that as quickly and as simply as I can. I think it's kind of depressing sometimes to acknowledge how much material has been produced in the last couple of centuries, really, trying to discuss Irish and Welsh and other Celtic sources and basically misrepresenting them and and making a total hash of them. And that's not to say there hasn't been an improvement over the last decade. I think there have been some better attempts and better books published. But generally, you know, English antiquarianism through into the New Age movement has shown kind of an appalling lack of sensitivity and humility, really, using Celtic source materials. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, on the one hand, I accept that it's really very difficult for people who are genuinely interested and want to learn properly and want to respect. It's really hard for them to find good resources because they are overwhelmed with so much nonsense. So I do, you know, I do very much understand that. But on the other hand, as you say, yes, approaching the material with a sense of respect and humility without having this appropriation of it, which is so prevalent in the world today, would be a really good starting point for the people that are writing about it and putting stuff out there. Indeed, it would. And you know, where I'm up for sharing culture, I think being able to share mm. other people's cultures is one of the most human things we can do, but we have to do it with a pinch of self awareness as well. Um, and just to make sure that we're not misrepresenting even our own historical cultures. You know, I'm by no means a spokesperson for all of the Welsh, I can simply speak for one small portion of it in a historical sense. So. Bear in mind that we are all limited humans, let's say. Absolutely, absolutely. So what we're going to try to do now is for people who are really genuinely interested in the Welsh Bardic tradition, and particularly in that very wonderful, fascinating character of Taliesin, uh, Mm -hmm. who we will get to later on, we are going to try and give them something which hopefully is inspiring and entertaining, but is actually factually correct. So I just wanted to, before we get into the Welsh tradition, just say a little bit of something about the, the Irish tradition, because these really are the two countries out of all of the the nations that are now classified as Celtic based on speaking today a Celtic language. Those are the really only two countries that have got extensive textual evidence, particularly which makes some reference, especially in the Irish tradition, to the pre-Christian era or where we can really glean some information about the pre-Christian era. And that in itself, I know, is a very, very complicated subject, which we'll try not to go into. But in the Irish tradition, we, we know that there were a number of different classifications of what we might call the bardic class, that we had the the poet, the learned folk in Ireland, before the arrival of Christianity, included the poet or the phile, the bard, who passed on oral learning to future generations. And they were distinct in many ways in Ireland, as far as we can tell, from the Druids who who presided over the religious traditions. And so the very fascinating thing, of course, that happened in Ireland is that when the Christian monasteries were founded and the scribes were such an amazing part of that, there was this amazing 
collaboration, I suppose, and a very unique collaboration between the native Philly, the native poets, and the Christian scribes in the sense that the Christian scribes wrote down the old stories, you know, and there are all kinds of references in the old text to the fact that they thought that this was important knowledge to preserve. Now, that didn't stop them from inserting a number of Christianizations into some key stories, but nevertheless, we have this remarkable collection of texts which uh, which have been handed down because they were written down by Christian monks. What they never did, of course, not surprisingly, is they never wrote down the specific religious and spiritual teachings of the Druids because that was a competing religion. So tell us a little bit about, from that, you know, in Ireland, we've got a, a huge body of texts, some of which remarkably remain untranslated because there just aren't enough people that can, that can decipher the manuscripts and read Old Irish. But we have this remarkable body of texts. So tell us a little bit of what we've got in terms of material to go on in the Welsh tradition. So we don't have texts that are necessarily as old in their written form as what we find in an Irish manuscript, but we certainly have comparable texts written at a a slightly later date, which have their roots in a much older oral tradition. So we definitely have comparable stories. We can think of the four branches of the Mabinogi or Kiluch and Dalwen, which have a remarkable similarity in terms of theme and symbolic content and, and their, their mythic potential, if you like, that you know, we can easily compare with stories from Ireland. So in that sense, they're kind of very, very similar traditions, unsurprisingly, as they are bo- both evolved from the same root culture, if you like, of sort of the late Bronze Age, 3,000 odd years ago before Irish and Welsh actually diverged as languages and as cultures. So we have that. We don't have as much as we find in Ireland, but what we do have is significant and potent and does offer a window onto what I would call the non-Christian elements of Welsh Celtic culture in the early medieval period, perhaps in the medieval period. I think it's it's probably best to acknowledge off the top that this is a Christian culture we're talking about in terms of its aristocracy and in terms of its public-facing uh, presentation of itself, if you like. The original Taliesin back in the 6th century was almost certainly a, a Uh, considered a Christian, but it's also a culture which incorporates many of the non-Christian elements that survived in folk culture. So we do have elements in the four branches of the Mabinogi and in the book of Taliesin, a medieval manuscript containing lots of poetry. Many of the material in there does express a deeper mythology which doesn't come from uh, Christian culture. So it is native to this land, if you like. And that's the difficulty, isn't it, in both traditions, even in the Irish tradition, where there clearly is older, a greater body of older texts, there is still this great difficulty from texts that were ultimately written down in a Christian context of deciphering which of it is kind of like the pre-Christian pagan material and, and of trying to make any judgments about what the belief systems might have been based on those texts. Absolutely. And, and, it's, and it's ultimately a very uh, subjective way of working. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's so difficult to do that in a purely academic context. Because if you're involved in interpretation, you're essentially in, involved in a, in a very subjective engagement, a creative engagement with a text. And it's difficult to make hard and fast objective theories about it. The, the guidelines that I work to are essentially 
comparison. So if there's a story, for example, in the second branch of the Mabinogi, that I can find a comparable uh, story in Irish myth, then either that similarity is due to a borrowing or it's due to an older mythology that both stories have grown out of. So even though it's still a subjective process and even though it's still difficult to make hard and fast objective historical claims about it, there are some guidelines that we can use to draw out what these older myths might have been, so long as we acknowledge that this is still very much guesswork and we have to own that, you know, as people trying to be upfront about what we're doing. Exactly. And in the Irish tradition, it's very much the same. You know, so people talk a lot about um, pre-Christian Irish cosmology, you know, the worldview, the sense of, of the gods and how the world came into being. And, and of course, as I said, you know, it's all very well uh, to do that from the texts, but we're not we're not looking at religious and spiritual beliefs that were written down here. We're trying to extrapolate from the stories, you know, what kind of worldview these people might have, have, have held. And I agree with you absolutely that there, there is a lot that, that, can be, that can be assumed. And if it seems to fit with other Celtic nations, and we find the same cosmology and we find it in some of the other Euro- Indo-European cultures, then I think we can probably assume that we're onto something that's really good. But yes, we have to, we have to understand that we will never know exactly what our ancestors believed or what they practiced, but we can understand some of the things that were really important to them and some of the, the, the things that mattered. And that gives me great comfort, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this is the position that all generations find themselves in. I mean, if you can imagine living in an oral culture where what you've received is by word of mouth, they were culturally in a much more tenuous situation. You know, they, they didn't have recourse to a historical record. Each successive generation has to recreate for themselves the, the culture that they need to, to live in, that they need to survive in. And myths are appropriated by successive generations and made different uses of. So the use that we make of a particular mythology is obviously going to be very different to the use uh, its use uh, in the past. That's not a problem. I think that's just the human condition. That's just where we are. And this notion that, that there is some kind of historical purity that we can rely on, I think is a bit misleading. And it kind of misses the point because it misses our role in the creation of our culture. And being, being sort of serious and sort of uh, self-aware enough to see our role in how we create our own myths based on these ancient historical forms, of course. But it is something new that's appropriate to us, too. And I think that's a really important part of the process that we often miss. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I come to mythology, I suppose, from a depth psychology, a post-Jungian depth psychology perspective, and merge merging the two. And I think actually a lot of a lot of the the most interesting work and ideas on mythology over the past several decades have come as a result of, of Jung's work. You know, whether you think it's perfect or not. And his main point, one of his main points about mythology, is that humans are myth makers. You know, we are myth-making, story-making creatures. And I always remember reading for the first time a very wonderful novel by a, a Native American writer, Leslie Marmon Silco, a book, uh, a novel called Ceremony, in mm. which she has a Native American elder kind of medicine man called Bethany talk about the importance of allowing the ceremonies, which kind of includes the stories, to grow. You know, that if you try and if you try and confine them, if you try and say, okay, they're finished now, that's the proper story that's the 
only story, you're effectively killing them. You know, you're not letting them have their own process of becoming in the world. You're not allowing them that unfolding. And that whole indigenous tradition, it seems to me, from the, the all of the indigenous traditions that I have worked with and people I've spoken to, is very much about that being a, an iterative process that we us as myth makers. And I think where we went wrong in the West is probably allowing the Christian tradition to tell us that all of the stories ended 2,000 years ago. You know, that that was the end of that story. It was written down. Can't do anything with it now. That possibly is one of the reasons we got into the mess that we're in today. Well, certainly. And, and, you know, one of the things that I'm often coming back to on the courses is is the need for us to acknowledge our own myth-making lives that that and it's one of the reasons why i think it's important to challenge the kind of modern uh, anglo-american notion of celticness because it kind of gets in the way of people being able to explore the materials anew and come at them afresh and see what the real treasures of celtic mythology really are without having to try and view them and make them conform with this vision of Celticness, which is actually someone else's and is convenient to, you know, a particular culture that really has nothing to do with historical Celtic culture. So, you know, the, I mean, that's kind of one of the, the, the second stages in the work, if you like, is to be able to approach tales like the Four Branches of the Mabinogi or the poems in the Book of Taliesin and to see that they do contain what I would call the remnants of a Welsh wisdom tradition, and that that does discuss the relationship between the natural and the supernatural, and it explores the mysteries of nature and time and memory and human nature and animal nature and all of the other sociological aspects of, you know, status and power and gender roles and so on. That's all in this mythology. But I find that people have a difficult time getting in touch with that when they they're kind of blinkered by this very modern idea of what Celticness should be like. And if it doesn't fit that mold, then, you know, we can't listen to it. So it's a way of avoiding too many dogmas, basically. Yeah. Either the, the, the dogma of, of overly rigorous, or overly uh, conservative and, and frankly cynical academia on one side of, of the relationship, and then this kind of fantastical, Tolkien-esque vision of Celticness mm-hmm. on the other, and trying to steer this middle course where there is value, but we need to avoid these, these very strong dogmatic positions to get to the real marrow on the bow of the bone, if you like. Exactly. Okay, so tell us something about the Welsh bardic tradition. I'm not going to tell you where to start. I'm going to leave it up to you. Well, I suppose it begins with the final collapse of the Druids as a political and cultural and spiritual force in Celtic Britain. The Romans leave in the early 400s. They leave a power vacuum. It's obvious that the Bards take on more of the priest class role with the Druids being forced underground during the Roman occupation of Western Europe. And the Bards really not only take on the, the, the priestly role in terms of communal activities, sort of acts of communal praise, for example, or acts of communal commem- uh, commemoration and remembrance of the dead, but they also take on the role of creating the myth of the aristocracy, essentially. It's how we first see the activities of the early Welsh Bardic tradition. And 
I think that the bards were obviously always involved in myth-making, but they take on more of the religious role of myth-making, as in creating these very powerful cultural traditions that can last from generation to generation, that, that embody aspects of communal wisdom, that communicate to, for example, the young uh, warrior elite what their role is in society, what values and ideals they should live by. So the Welsh bards begin in this situation where they've adopted a priest class, they're creating the mythology of the aristocracy, and they're also involved in really creating the mythology of the bard, the bard himself. So they use myths in, and this is very narrow anthropological terms now, but they use myths to communicate their authority and their power to their communities. So they, they create a persona for themselves of the great wise enchanter bard, uh, the great wise one who literally was the teacher of the young nobility, who was the lawyer, who was the counsellor, who was the mediator in disputes. So the, the bards did actually take on all of these roles. But in performance, in the performance of poetry, in the performance of story, they would adopt this persona of the wise enchanted bard, if you like. And that's really where the figure of Taliesin has its roots. Taliesin is very much the embodiment of the Welsh bardic tradition, a Gandalf-like figure, if you like, which says something about the power of that mythology that it's lasted so long into this, into this time. It's interesting because I, I'm curious about how how the nature, I don't quite know the word to use, how the nature of the bard was perceived, I suppose, because certainly in the Irish tradition, the filly were believed to be able, through the power of speech and through the power of incantation, particularly incantation combined with a particular stance, you know, with, with particularly yeah. standing on one leg with one arm behind your back, the classic kind of like, you know, half person shamanic position that you see the world over, that their speech, their poems, not just their satires on the kings, but that if they if they were properly trained, if they knew the ways to do it, that they would actually their words would actually create change in, in the world. Is that something also that we see in the Welsh tradition? Absolutely, yes. I mean the the whole role of the bard is predicated on this idea of enchanted speech and powerful speech. And the power in that speech is really about what's been communicated. And what the bards were involved in communicating was a very particular mythology. And they understood that mythology lies at the heart of all cultural engagement. Uh, it's incredibly important to us as human animals to be involved in myth all of the time. So they positioned themselves in the heart of cultural creation, of the creation of self-identity, of the way that nations and communities thought of themselves and positioned themselves in relation to other communities and other nations. So yes, there is there is that anthropological understanding of magical speech, but then there is also the reality of magical speech in performance, um, which is where the whole notion of awen comes in. And I'm talking about awen in the original sense here, not in this later sort of understanding of what awen is, but Traditionally, awen is a, a type of inspiration that takes hold of the bard in performance and takes hold of the audience in performance as well. So we, we forget 
when we read many of these poems, such as in the book of Taliesin, that these were composed to be performed in front of audiences. And that performance was really the place where the bard would reveal their power as someone who could create a particular world, a, a particular, bring out a particular dimension in the world that people could suddenly witness around them. And that, of course, in many ways corresponds to the other concept at this time, which is an oven, which is often described as an other world, but I prefer to describe it as a, a deepening of this realm, if you like, as opposed to an other world as in it's far away and it's difficult to get to. But an oven as a deepening of this world is what the bards would open up for their audiences and present them with the great ideals and the great archetypal narratives that they live with. And it's kind of bringing an, aware, an awareness of that to an audience, which is such an important part of the performer's role, if you like, of the bard's role in the court. It's like revealing the mythological architecture of the court to the audience and, and saying to them, you live in this magnificence, you live in, in this idyllic realm all the time. It's just that it's not so apparent to you. Yes, I think that whole sense of the other world in in certainly in the Irish tradition as well is very very similar and really really interesting and I, I just worth kind of diverting a little bit maybe for a couple of minutes on that because in the Irish tradition also just as in the Welsh the other world is not a place that you go to it's not located in any particular place you can access it um, in many different ways by going to the bottom of a loch by going into a hollow hill by crossing a veil of mist by crossing a river you know it is very much this concept of the liminal zones and to me the Irish other world in the Welsh other world to the extent that I've been able to to delve into it is very much of the kind of world that we are talking about when we look at um, I work a lot with the old Sufi and ancient Greek traditions of the imaginal worlds so in the in the ancient Sufi tradition we have something uh, which scholars have called the mundus imaginalis which is literally the imaginal world it's the place where the archetypal beings live it's the place where the stories live it's the place where that important mythical stuff happens. It's where it emanates from, where it comes from. It's the source of it. We see that also in the ancient Greek tradition with Plato. And I have always believed that the Irish other world is our particular version of that. You know, it's a source of inspiration with which we need constantly to be in contact, to have heart in our communities and to keep that nourishing life-giving force flowing into the world without which, as a lot of the old myths tell us from, you know, from the British tradition, the Welsh tradition and the Irish tradition, if we don't have that flow from the other world, then the land becomes a wasteland or it becomes inundated or basically bad stuff happens. So I love to think of the Welsh other world as, as equally um, important, as equally critical to, to, to literally to the well-being of this world. Absolutely. And, and one of the ways in which we can deepen this world and to open out onto what may have been called an oven in the past, is to actually engage with myths. And I think the Welsh bards understood this very well, that inviting an audience to engage with a mythic reality is a way of deepening their connection to their actual lives and the places and the people they live with. Um, I'm a great uh, fan of quoting, um, I think he was a fourth century Greek author, a chap called Seleucius, and he said, to conceal the truth by myths prevents the contempt of the foolish, 
uh, and compels the good to practice philosophy. So that mm. the idea that myths conceal a truth that needs to be drawn out and that truth is concealed so that people not interested in that way of thinking will not understand it. But those who want to seek the truth in a myth will be required to interpret and work with and sit with and ponder the, the mythic narrative that they're presented with. And, uh, you know, that's essentially what I'm trying to encourage on the courses is that level of, of deepening of engagement. And that, and, you know, I, I understand that that kind of flies in the face of modern trends in academia because I'm encouraging a fundamentally subjective, immersive engagement with stories, still following certain objective guidelines, as I explained in terms of comparison, what have you. I think in that sense, modern scholarship tends to miss a trick sometimes in that, you know, I know academia, it's at its most useful when it's focused on historical facts and objective accounts. But ultimately, if you really want to understand the culture, you kind of have to be in it. You have to take part in it and you've got to get drunk on it if you want to get really really into it and really taste it. And, you know, for me, any kind of cultural engagement is is basically spiritual. I mean, I don't know how it could be otherwise. Culture is fundamentally what allows us to transcend ourselves and bear witness to and have compassion for everything outside of ourselves. It's If that's not spiritual, I don't know what is. And I think that it's often missed in the study of text and literature that we do need to engage on that level. Or we're missing a large part of the value and nourishment that's available in many of these ancient stories. Absolutely. I think one of the things that, you know, our modern religious traditions particularly have have harmed us, one of the ways in which they have harmed us is to to put this barrier between us and any real sense of the sacred, you know, that the, the whole concept of personal gnosis has kind of gone by the board. Whereas to me, if we want to do anything about the very challenging times that we find ourselves in we have to start from the bottom up it has to start with us it has to start with our personal transformation with our personal understanding that we have experienced because we've been taught a lot of crap basically for too long by people who haven't allowed us to go through the door uh, so these are absolutely for me myth is very much a doorway to really understanding the various layers of reality that that, that are out there and to to literally piercing the veil and seeing seeing what else there is indeed yeah and and you know this this does come back to the role of the welsh bards in their communities and you know it it's probably best to remember that they were the nobility to begin with this is essentially an aristocratic tradition and you know the vast majority of the population were bonded laborers and slaves and not doing particularly well but ultimately this aristocratic tradition once it had the resources and the ability to to look at culture and what culture can do for us, we see the development of this very specialised class of myth makers who essentially acknowledge that there is no depth or cohesiveness or richness or sustainability in culture unless we have some way of creating and spreading myths and getting people to engage in myths in different ways and you know traditionally this would only have happened probably within the the nobility because the majority of people didn't have the resources or the time to pay attention to it they were too busy simply surviving but but one of the 
questions that arises from the myth-making of the Welsh bardic tradition is, is really, are we able to use myths or are we simply being used by myths? And there's, there's this idea of the, the bard presenting the mythology of aristocracy to the nobility and saying, well, this is what you could be. These are the standards and the noble ideals that you could be living by. And we will praise you uh, as if you were this heroic figure. But can you really live according to the values and ideals of that mythology? You know, can you consciously buy into this? Or are we just basically selling you a fantasy and are we merely using you as a vehicle for the perpetuation of, of this type of aristocracy that suits us? So for me, you know, and this is kind of the, the, the deeper aspect of the courses in many ways, is trying to look at us as myth-making, myth-using animals and whether or not we're conscious of the myths we live by if we can pay attention to how we adopt myths we find attractive, you know, can we find out about ourselves? You know, can we see ourselves as we engage in myths? Because if we can, I think that we can learn a lot about ourselves. And of course, if we can't, if we're merely unconscious vehicles of myth, I think that's particularly dangerous, you know, um, in the depth psychology tradition, uh, that whole concept of personal myth-making is absolutely critical and, and coming to understand the mythic patterns which underlie our lives is a key part of, of the work that I do as well. And it's a really very interesting thing because there is always this tendency, even in some depth psychology circles, to focus on the myths that are living you, you know, the, the unconscious patterns that you're living out, but a uh, much less of a focus on the fact that we can choose to live our own myths, you know, that we can choose myths to live by. We can, we can change things. We can change the patterns if, if we don't think they serve us and certainly if we don't think that they serve the planet. And one of the things that I find particularly fascinating is the ways in which going back to some of our old traditional myths actually serves us right now, you know, not just as kind of envisaging who we are in the world, but also in looking at different values to live by, given that the values that we've been living by over the past several hundred years have not really done a great job at keeping the planet going. And we see a lot of very nature-based stories, you know, nature-based ideas about the world, which really do show that whatever else they might have done, and let's face it, none of them were perfect. Our ancestors did really believe that living in harmony with the natural world, uh, living in harmony with the other world that flowed into it was an absolutely key point uh, in, in, in the culture. Yeah, totally. And, and that really is the Many of the lessons that I find in the four branches of the Mabinogi, for example, they do speak to the need to be aware of the balance between the natural and the supernatural, between the mortal and the immortal, uh, immortal the, the, the temporal dimension and the timeless dimension. And the tensions between those different states, I think, is one of the, the great themes of the four branches of the Mabinogi and this notion of balance and of not just balance in terms of power within a patriarchy, but a balance of power also between the sexes. It's one of the most misunderstood aspects of the four branches of the Mabinogi, I would say. I was just wondering if you could give us an example of that. Well, yeah. So uh, the, the 
The simplest example is to look at the different marriages that occur in the four branches. There are four marriages in total. Both of Rhiannon's marriages in the first and third branches are ultimately marriages of love, and they result in a stable political outcome, whereas the marriages in the second and the fourth branches with Branwen and Bladewed are ultimately arranged marriages, uh, as in marriages that are politically convenient to the patriarchy, and ultimately those marriages are totally disastrous for everybody and anything that, that's touched by them. And those uh, societies ultimately fail or, or appear to be not sustainable in the long term. So there is complete carnage in Ireland, uh, and there's a, an, uh, the throne in Britain is usurped at the end of the second branch. And at the end of the fourth branch, uh, Lle, the, the person, uh, the, the, the king at the end of the story doesn't have an heir to the throne and there's uh, great uncertainty about the continuity and the, the sustainability of that lineage. So and th there's so much more that we could go into in terms of, of how the fourth branch in particular contrasts the kind of Machiavellian wheeling and dealing political uh, malevolence of Gwydion, for example, and contrasts that with the experience of the suffering of the women in the fourth branch. And, and that suffering is meant to be part of the lesson, as in, this is how not to run your kingdom. You know? <laughs> yeah, and in, in that sense, you know, going back to the, the Seleustius quote, is that, that when we accept that myths, myths are never real, but they're always true, in that they always speak to something true about the human experience. Once we come at them with that understanding, we deepen the meaning ourselves. We, come in, we are then engaged in this creative process of interpretation and drawing out an understanding that may suit us, and it should suit us really, because we're the ones who have to find meaning in this crazy world. <laughs> but once, once we try creating this meaning for ourselves, it's in that process that we can see, well, why am I after this meaning? What is this meaning for in my life? And that's really where the work deepens into something that kind of transcends culture in many ways and kind of goes beyond whether you're Welsh or Irish or English or American or Canadian or African or wherever, but comes down to that very, very basic need to be honest about who we are and what we are and what our needs are. And, and very often that kind of work, it doesn't happen much online for me, but usually, you know, it's sort of face to face in front of a fire. We can evoke these very durable and sustainable notions of the sacred we can talk at length, we can be honest, we can witness each other. And, you know, that's kind of the, the, the outcome of dealing with mythology honestly, if you like, of actually relating it to our own condition and, and current life situation. For sure. And I, I love the fact um, that, as I alluded to earlier, you know, in these old mythologies, we have these really important values that we can pick up again in, in the sense that they have endured. You know, they may put on different clothing down the centuries, but it's very clear that the values have endured. So you mentioned the the marriages and the Mabinogian and the, the balance between male and female. And we see that so critically in the Irish tradition where, you know, we, they actually had the sacred marriage between the king and the land, uh, the land being the goddess of the land, the goddess of what we call sovereignty in that tradition, which lasted right up to the 16th century. You know, that, that sacred rite of kingship involving a symbolic marriage to the land was a recognition that 
that the female qualities, if, if you like, of the land, of, of the natural world were absolutely you needed uh, along with that you needed the qualities of the sacred masculine which were the kind of the the right kingship the right judgment you know the ability of discernment the judgment of the king in opposition uh, in combination with in marriage with the the qualities of land and the natural world and that is still relevant to us today you know uh, we may express it differently now but we find that embedded in our ancestral mythology and in the very oldest texts and i think that's a very fine thing to be able to say that that you know that has endured and we can work with that again we can make it relevant to the issues we face today absolutely and you know historically that mythology it did also evolve into the modern early modern era into the folk culture of of wales we see how the notions of um a female embodiment of the supernatural aspects of the land is you know instead of being a princess or or a, a noble woman is a farmer's wife and the, the mythology uh, has been adapted to fit the realities of the working class life if you like then where we have this idea of the fairy bride uh, and the farmer who needs to learn how to treat the fairy bride well so that the farm can prosper that kind of story is really a retelling of the same mythology that we find in the four branches of the mabinogi just repurposed for a working class folk setting and you know that that really encourages me to to be a little bit more fluid with engagement to mythology because if we're not appropriating these mythologies for ourselves and repurposing them in a respectful and sort of uh, conscious and mature way if we're not doing that then we're kind of leaving a lot of goodness on the table you know we're not engaging with what we need if you like as a culture so it, it is a fine balance this idea of respecting the tradition and the text and making sure that we understand it but also being free enough to make use of it ourselves too yeah that's that's the trick isn't it and that's where i think it, it's often difficult for people to understand i think one of the things that i i say i insist on that's that's very authoritarian and i'm not but when people do my my courses is is that that they have to understand i think what our ancestors are, what we do actually know you know what we know about what our ancestors believe and what we don't and what the texts tell us and what they don't tell us and what they allow us to infer and what they don't allow us to infer. But yes, absolutely, with that knowledge, with that understanding of what there is to work with, we are absolutely free as creative myth-making individuals to, to bring that forward into today. I suppose where I sometimes get frustrated is when people say, well, you know, our ancestors believe this. Or there was one wonderful example I had when I really first began to do this work a few years ago, where I read some blog from a young American woman who had said something like, oh, in Ireland, you know, Gronya is the goddess, Gronya in the Jarmut and, and Gronya stories is the goddess of the harvest and Irish people worship her still. And it was just like, well, yeah. no, actually, she was a human being, not a goddess. We don't have goddesses of, you know, we don't have pantheons in the Greek tradition anyway. And the Irish people do not worship us still, but it was just this sense of no sense of responsibility to actually go and find out whether that was true. I think that's where we really need to know what would have been the case before we make that kind of statements. But hey, yeah, you know, then whatever we find necessary and useful today has to spring from that basis and has to change, has to evolve. 
Absolutely. And it's, I think it's just a matter of being honest mm. where our inspiration begins and where the text ends. Yeah. And so long as we keep doing that and we don't make claims about some grand ancient tradition, then I think that, that we're on safe ground and we are being respectful and honest about what we're actually doing. Because one of the, one of the main frustrations for me, and I'm sure for you also, is this notion that there, there is a continuing ancient uh, magical tradition that has survived into the present day uh, and we can still buy into it. And, and that kind of misses the whole point of what mythology is really, which is that each successive generation needs to accept it for themselves and work with it themselves and create the tradition that they need for themselves in the time that they're living in. As every generation surely would have done in the past, it's, it isn't abnormal in the human tradition. I think that is the human tradition. It has to be appropriate to the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, um, I think it's. I think a lot of it is, as I said earlier, you know, that dogma that that um, our current religions have imposed upon us that tells us that there is only one way of doing things and that we have no right, we have no, we have no agency uh, in these matters. That it's the province of, of other people who know better than absolutely. we do. I think that's really stultified us mm. in this respect. Yeah. And it's a difficult balance because mm. I don't want to tread on anybody else's inspiration. What I really want folks to do is to notice their own inspiration and see where it comes from and see what it is and what it means to them. Because once we're witnessing how we become inspired by things and how we engage with things, we're again involved in that deeper realm. We're involved in extending out into the deeper realm of culture and mythology and the creation of meaning. And if we can see ourselves in that moment, then we can learn an awful lot about ourselves. Exactly. So tell us something. I'm not going to let you go without hearing a little bit more about Taliesin, who is a figure that particularly fascinates me. So tell us something about Taliesin. And I don't know whether it would be feasible for you to, to maybe read something in, uh, uh, in the, I, the book of Taliesin or tell us something about... I'm quite close to my books, so I could. So Taliesin was a historical figure. He was a real bard, alive towards the end of the 500s. Uh, and his poetry is probably the earliest Welsh poetry that we have on record. He is considered the founding father of the Welsh bardic tradition to this day. Welsh language poets uh, alive now will often evoke an aspect of his work and his tradition. So there's that Taliesin. But then there is the just as interesting, if not more interesting, Taliesin the myth. And Taliesin, as a, as a legendary figure, really becomes a figure that later bards adopted as a dramatic persona. So, for example, many of the poems written in the Book of Taliesin, which was copied down around 1350, but contains much older material, many of those poems could well have been uh, composed by quite a famous Welsh bard known as Prydydd de Moch, who was chief bard to Llywelyn the Great, one of the greatest kings in Wales. So, uh, you know, the highest ranking bard of his time, essentially. Composed poems in which the bard would adopt the persona of Taliesin. So in performance, evoking that mythological spirit, if you like, uh, adopting the persona of the archetypal wise man, the great bard, who can advise the king and can foresee the future and knows all the hidden mysteries of nature, uh, a man of learning, if you like, uh, the, the priest class, essentially, embodied in, uh, uh, in the bard. In that sense, the Taliesin myth 
really tells us a lot about what medieval Welsh culture and the Welsh bardic tradition at that time valued and thought was important. And it really is an, an evocation of primarily confidence to begin with, this idea that the performer needs to have a deep and profound faith in themselves or the audience will not buy into what the performance trying to sell them. They, and if, because if, if, there is, if there isn't an underlying belief in the performance, then an oven and the deeper space cannot be opened up. There has to be some trust. And that trust really stems from the Taliesin persona's confidence. And also, of course, there's the whole mystique of secret knowledge and hidden learning and the, the various strands of specialised bardic learning that were necessary to create a fully-fledged professional court bard. That's all brought into this persona. And it's part of what's required to open up the mythic space, if you like, in that setting. It's also very macho, a lot of machismo involved in this poetry. Uh, Taliesin essentially portrays himself as a, a poet who fights with words, whereas the, the nobleman will fight with swords. So there's a lot of, a, a lot of the poetry celebrates the, the, the male ideal in that way also. I'm just trying to think of what I can read you as a good flavour of Taliesin poetry, because of course, another big part of, oh, here we go. I'll read you the first bit of Angar Kvindaud, which is the longest poem in the book of Taliesin. I'll read you a bit of the Welsh first, and then I'll read you a bit of the English. So the Welsh goes, Bar the man am I ne chaintagano, caned pandarfa soweti than idvo, hailon nam nakon is debi arotha, truyeith taliesin, bithi de mechin, kian pandarvi, shiau sugavali, be shaith be darvi, araith avagvi, nestig and gelvid. Cavre Argoid. It goes on in that kind of very pounding rhythm. <laughs> uh, it's really expressive. It's great stuff to perform, really, uh, as you'd expect. Very and impressive. The, well, the, the the but the meaning is as important in many ways as as the the musical effect of the poetry itself. Taliesin in this early section of the poem really talks about himself as a, a deep one who becomes flesh. So. The, the spirit, the, the cultural spirit, if you like, that is the mythical Taliesin being evoked in the moment of performance by the performing bard uh, and how the bard uh, in performance blurs the distinction between the, the physical and the non-physical cultural space, if you like. The creation of myth in performance is really what Taliesin is talking about here. And I think that's the, the real lesson of the Taliesin persona in the Welsh Bardic tradition is this notion of the, the individual can be an embodiment of all of the things that the community needs in terms of culture and mythology uh, and spiritual awareness. That's the real lesson, I would say. That's the service Taliesin was providing as a mythic figure back in the day, at least. And how does that relate to the story that a lot of people will have heard and be aware of, of the birth of Taliesin, of um, Taliesin and Caridwen? So what I've just read to you there is really part of the aristocratic culture of Wales. So it's a 
you know, the culture of nobility, the, the very high-ranking court bards of the time as a member of that as members of that nobility. And then later on in the Welsh tradition, we find these folk stories. So around 1550 is when the earliest complete version of the tale of Taliesin is first copied down. Uh, and that story uh, is the story of Gwion Bach and how Gwion Bach stirs Ceridwen's cauldron and accidentally receives the three drops of inspiration and then escapes the, the angry, fuming sorceress with all these different animal transformations. And then, of course, she, eats, she catches him, she eats him, uh, and then she gives birth to Taliesin. That is very much a part of Welsh folk culture. So uh, the, the, the lower classes would have their own version of Taliesin. And one of the important aspects of Welsh history that we need to remember is that Wales loses its aristocracy around this time. So the Welsh aristocracy are essentially bought off by the English aristocracy after the conquest of Wales. The Welsh aristocracy become anglicised and they become an aspect of London culture. So the Welsh people, the Welsh nation, are essentially without a ruling class, uh, apart from an, an oppressive, now English-speaking establishment. And that nation of people uh, repurposes many of the myths that are still current in Welsh culture, one of those myths being the Taliesin myth, the, the myths in Fulbrantis, for example. We have these very uh, folk-based interpretations of what were once quite aristocratic uh, myths. And the story that most people are familiar with is an incredibly interesting one because it, it really suggests that Taliesin's wisdom at least partially stems from his experience as an animal being hunted. Yes. So it's, it's that idea of compassion, wisdom through being compassionate with animals, with the lived experience of the world around us. And that it's not just the three drops of magical inspiration that gives Taliesin this, or gives Guillaume this amazing hallucinatory experience of the amazingness of the universe. It's also very much the real lived physical suffering of animals, which is also part of that wisdom. And that's one of the aspects of the story that's very often overlooked is that we're all focused on the, oh, it's the magic potion and the magical enlightenment and the superhuman abilities. Whereas a big part of the story is the reality of suffering as lived beings and that there's compassion and wisdom in that too. Exactly. Wonderful. And the, the question that I have been meaning to ask you as well as you've been talking is, is there any evidence in the Welsh tradition of female bards as there is in the Irish tradition where we have the band Philly referred to from time to time? Not at the earliest stages, no. It's quite likely that uh, patriarchy in its worst forms was firmly uh, established mm. at very early periods. But there have been notable women poets throughout the Welsh tradition and, you know, very talented female poets as well. Gwerville Mechain, Anne Griffiths, and, and then through to the modern period today, we've got a whole wealth of very talented Welsh writers. And, you know, the, the best translations of the Four Branches of the Mabinogi and the Book of Taliesin have been prepared by women scholars, uh, Shana Davis in Cardiff and Margaret Haycock in Aberystwyth being the, the most obvious. 
Indeed. Okay. Well, that's really, really been very interesting listening to that. And I guess the question that arises for me, given what we've been talking about in terms of myth-making and the importance of bringing forward into the contemporary setting that some of those old ideas and allowing them to transform, allowing them to take root in us again now in this very, very different world, what is a bard to you today? Because a lot of people use the term very lightly, don't they? You know, oh, he's a bard doesn't always seem to have the depth that we're talking about when people use that label. What does it mean to you to be a bard today? Well, I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to give you two answers. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, the, the first answer is, in my cultural tradition in Wales, a bard is essentially a poet, but there's a very specific type of poetry, which is a classical poetry, and it's a, so it involves a mastery of language, a mastery of the the literary tradition and a, a real mastery of, of current culture and the ability to weave all of those three things together to create fine poetry. So that's a bard or a bard in the Welsh tradition today. But I would also say that uh, a bard is, is not someone who can determine themselves to be a bard. A bard is a communal function. So it's really, I would say, to avoid any confusion, bards only arise when communities acknowledge them to be bards. Mm. If you don't have that, then there is no social function. You merely have personal aggrandizement and, you know, the, the celebration of a limited ego. So I've often been accused of being a bard and I, I really don't like it. I don't, I would never call myself that. And I know that various other people who are involved in the creative arts today would struggle with that definition too. Um, I'm quite happy with musician and friends of mine are quite happy with poet and a writer. And, you know, do we really need to go back into these antiquated definitions today? I'm not quite sure we do. I think there's a lot more work to be done on finding out what being simply human is um, and that that should be enough work to do. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful way to end what's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Before you go, though, I'd love it if you could tell people where they can find you and learn more about your in-depth courses in these subjects. Sure. So if you go to gwilmore.com, that's the current online home for pretty much everything I do. If you go to gwilmore.com or you can Google the white deer blog or you can go to the Celtic Source Facebook page where there's a lot of material too and if folks are interested in getting in touch to find out when the next few courses are they're more than welcome to message me uh, through any of those online sites. And you do an occasional uh, live stream don't you through Facebook as well? I do yes so I'll be I don't know when this podcast goes out but I'll be starting again in January 2020. I normally do a live Q&A uh, every Monday and people are welcome to send me in their questions or comments or complaints or celebrations. <laughs> That's brilliant. I've listened to them and they're absolutely fascinating. So I, they come highly recommended. Thank you so much, Gwilym, for taking the time to talk to me today and uh, all the best of luck with your courses next year. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening to This Mythic Life. 
And a reminder that if you enjoyed it, you might also enjoy my monthly membership program, which is also called This Mythic Life, and which includes a weekly subscriber-only podcast in which I focus in on a favourite myth or fairy tale and discuss the ways in which its themes and archetypes have relevance for our lives in these challenging times. You can find details at www.sharonblackie.net forward slash membership. And these public podcasts are developed, produced and brought to you thanks to the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you're able to support this work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for Sharon Blackie, or you can find a link on my website's podcast page. So this is me signing off for now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.